0: Hey, my name is Sharika Hellaludin. I'm the executive producer here at Race Matters. The piece you're going to hear today is the beginning of a series by some of our newest producers and co-hosts, Samantha Haran and Alicia Zhao, titled Radical Pedagogies. Over the last few months, they've been working together to reimagine and explore the possibilities of what education can be and the alternative ways in which we can learn outside the narrow offerings of colonial and capitalist institutions. You're going to hear the first episode of that series today, and it begins by looking critically at the ways in which current models of education are failing people and enacting violence. They did a call out to you, our listeners, and we were inundated with messages that were both vulnerable and very concerning. You're going to hear a couple today. A note that one of the voice messages we received names the failings of the Department of Education in New South Wales as part of this. We reached out to the Department of Education for comment, but did not hear back from them. Another note that the same voice message contains instances of highly distressing content. We flag this in more detail in the episode. We ask that you go gently when listening in and know that it's totally okay to opt out of this listening. Thanks for tuning in. Race matters.
1: Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters.
2: I'd like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal lands. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands long after us. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge, stories, and song, and we are privileged to be a part of that storytelling today and every day at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders, past and present. We're broadcasting from Redfern right now, the birthplace of Black theatre in this country, and a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. In relation to the conversation we're having today, I also want to honour the legacy of First Nations-led education here in Redfern and the Marawina Centre. What began in 1972 as a breakfast program to support Aboriginal children in school grew into a childcare centre and vital source of community. Generations of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children have attended Marawina and it continues to be a leading example of education that is rooted in Aboriginal epistemologies and kinship structures.
3: You're listening to Race Matters. This is a show that explores the values and complexities of race, culture, and identity. I'm Samantha Haran. And I'm Alicia Zhao. Today, we are reimagining and exploring the possibilities of what education could possibly be, and alternative ways in which we might be able to learn outside of the narrow offerings of colonial and capitalist institutions, like schools and universities. And that begins by looking critically at the ways in which our current models of education are failing people today and enacting violence. We come as learners to this series and invite you to engage with us in this ongoing dialogue. This is a platform for your voice to be heard too.
2: We are so excited to bring you a new series, Radical Pedagogies. In this episode, we're gonna be hearing from some of the stories of our listeners. What we're speaking about today contains some highly sensitive issues. And we ask that as you listen, just go gently. Um, And if you need to tap out at any point, that's totally okay. So we want to begin by introducing ourselves and telling you about what brought us to be wanting to explore and investigate these issues. So Sam,
3: um, tell me about yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, so um, I'm an abolitionist and a learning community organizer. And I do think of radio as an important part of that community organizing, but I also do some work with a political collective called The Resistance. Um, I am personally implicated into the sort of current framework of education because I'm undertaking a master's like a research project um, at a university. And my project is actually on um, social movements um, and abolitionism. So I'm kind of coming to this series because I'm really interested in holding myself to account to what I think is a really significant contradiction between doing political organizing in our communities and then doing political work in the academy, which is ultimately this place that is really implicated into the systems we're trying to challenge. It's implicated into colonialism, capitalism, heteropatriarchy, um, all those things. So I think that's something that I'm really bringing to this series is a desire to understand what that contradiction means and um, how we should really think about it and whether possibly if that contradiction is too strong and whether there can be a way to do meaningful work inside these education institutions, or if we really have to step away in order to be holding ourselves to our values. Um, How about you, Alicia?
2: I come to this series with a pretty different um, experience. Um, I'm a visual artist, and I studied at the National Art School, majoring in sculpture, although, My creative practice takes many different forms. It's always sort of like centered around um, materiality and um, the process itself. Um, I used to work as a art tutor for primary school kids, um, but was quickly disillusioned by the confined ways of teaching That I was forced into and subsequently had to quit. So that's informed my consciousness in teaching. And I'm currently undertaking further studies at the University of Sydney, uh, focused on queer, gender, and critical race theories alongside First Nations culture and history. These studies are really coming to shape the ways in which I want to pursue education that is as a practice of freedom and a force of transformation in people's lives and a part of that is nurturing people's creativity and critical awareness of the world in which we live and like all the structures that place limitations on our lives and I really believe that The center of such an education is and should be people's well being, like all different dimensions, whether it's emotional, spiritual, mental, and like physical. We're continuously upholding people's cultural safety and responsiveness. So I think it's important to recognize that these educational institutions are colonial corporations that. Continually perpetuate violence um, A violence that takes many different forms Whether that's through ideological means um, And the types of knowledges that it reproduces And indoctrinates people with Um, We can also think about like The erasure of particular histories Or Physical exclusion, or you know, the absolute lack of protective and supportive measures for students that are not in place, um, and entering into these like institutions, it's often where we first experience being racialized and gendered beings. These structures are inherently built for particular bodies, and defines what is the norm in our society um, and you know there's there's a multitude of people who fall in the cracks um, so I'm, I'm very interested in investigating that
3: yeah I think what really strikes me from what you said is that there's sort of like these two different dimensions we're thinking about which is that like the the violence these institutions do at the level of knowledge but then also at like the literal level of like the material buildings violently like imposed on unceded land and I know that that sort of like dual violence is something that I thought about a lot um, in my undergrad because I went to law school um, at the University of Queensland where I was literally um, in a program that was teaching the logic that criminalizes, incarcerates, um, polices people out um, in the world. It's the place where that sort of logic is created and perpetuated. And at the same time, um, the university is built um, on like an ex-slave um, plantation. Like the like dual violence is so um, significant to the way these places operate. And I think that there's so much that is um, sort of masked as like You know, you go to uni, you get like this education. Um, It's like a neutral, like giver of knowledge, and I think that's something that we're also looking at is the ways in which, um, so much is masked by the sort of facade of a place like a school or a uni. Um, And I think there's a lot to unpack there. I guess the effects and like the negative effects of these places aren't just within their walls, like that like the people going into these places come out and they go into the world Mm -hmm. and they do all sorts of things and i think something else that we're hoping to look at is not just like um people who go to schools and unis and things but who gets excluded from those places um and how that's also another sort of prong of um the harm that these places are doing Mm
2: -hmm. yeah we can also think about these places as built upon that exclusion that that is the necessary condition for the existence of those institutions.
4: We've
2: been delving into an interrogation of educational institutions and a couple of weeks ago we asked you to send in your stories in the form of voice notes if you have personal experiences of exclusion, inaccessibility or the various forms of violence in relation to educational institutions Um, whether that's racist, ableist. Queerphobic, misogynist, or classless injustice.
3: Um, thank you so much for sending in these vulnerable and really personal stories. I think part of our um, I guess emphasis on bringing in the voice notes was to sort of challenge the way um knowledge is made about even about things like um the way these places operate. We wanted to investigate it by listening to people's lived experiences um, and taking that as important knowledge in how we think about this issue. So we also hope to hold this space with care as we listen to the stories and unravel some of the underlying dynamics at play. So this first submission was from someone who took a university field trip for an anthropology course. Um, It was an overseas trip to the Solomon Islands.
1: The story I want to share about a rise from a social science field trip in um, earlier this year, uh, overseas social science field trip for credit in university, um, and it was a very interesting experience being. Um, being like far removed from the classroom and the usual classroom dynamics, but also kind of being in the field as well, how um, racial and gender dynamics of um, exclusion are still reproduced, even being so far away in Solomon Islands. Actually, we went to Solomon Islands to conduct ethnography and you know, um take research training in um anthropology <coughs> doing field work. And um something of note is that the group is a small group but only, only um two out of say fifteen. Um, um People in the group are personal colour, the rest are um, Anglo-Australians, and mostly of women. Um, We, throughout this period, we, because we, this is a New Colombo plan trip. Well, first and foremost, one of the things I point out is that um, me and my friend, who's also the person of color on the trip, he, um, she, and I notice how um, yeah. notice how the differences, the different ways in which we experience the field as people of color, are. Unacknowledged. It was presumed that we are experienced the fields as Anglo Australian. For example, we have wait, our wait, own wait, wait, distinct unique like <clears throat> um experiences, right? Like carrying racial trauma through the field. Like um and, and it was very difficult to speak about it. For example, my friend is traumatized by water. She, um... At one point, we had to take boat ride, and the water being a, a site where a lot of lives are lost during exodus um, for her people. Traveling on, open, on, this, on the sea is very terrifying, and it was hard to to speak about it. Um, For me, um, the Solomon Islands was a place where a lot of soldiers died in World War II who, um, who may be of there might be some Taiwanese soldiers, but that part of history is quite erased like there are memorials for Japanese and American soldiers but um, I wonder if there um, are people or ancestors over there who are in the ground but not acknowledged um, and um, in the field We have very different encounters to our Anglo-Australian peers who, you know, are, us and them are differently racialized by the Solomon Islanders. And we noticed that it was, um, maybe people were at some points generally quite more welcoming to us, more open to us. and Anglo-Australians and um, this has resulted in some jealousy actually because some people want to um, have more are jealous of the more um, encounters with the locals and learning from them that we're uh, we're just receiving we're able to Um, to gain through our positionality to experience through our positionality Um, and the dynamic of the group is quite tense from this yeah so but in the the end it was everything was kind of okay we never were able to talk about it and unpack it all
3: So, I think there was quite a lot to unpack. Um, Thank you so much uh, for submitting that really important story. I think something that um, strikes us initially that we kind of chatted about when we first heard it was that um, underlying the story is this idea that the sort of dynamics, whether they be racial or gendered, um, that are created, the power dynamics that are created in the classroom, in the university, um, they don't stay there, like those people take that out into the world um and they are reproduced in all kinds of contexts so it begins some things begin at uni, but they go elsewhere.
2: It was really interesting to hear how that even a field trip um that is research training um which is something that is you know that operates. Um, under the presumption that it is objective or it's neutral in entering into very, very different um, cultures and different geographical locations and coming into contact with um, different people. Um, But we carry those racial and gender dynamics within us and they are imposed upon other kinds of contexts. Um, in entering into very different um, cultural and geographical contexts, we are often ignorant to our own biases and perceptions of the world and the ways in which we relate to other people.
3: Um, I think something else really that stood out to me about the story was about sort of the broader context of the trip being a New Colombo Plan funded trip, and I think that speaks to something that's important about this series, which is that universities are necessarily implicated into these broader sort of these broader systems of of power dynamics of violence and the NCP particularly, which funds a lot of these sort of international trips into the global South is documented to be very entangled with the webs of imperialism um, and also like through the sort of like non-government organization, industrial complex of interfering with communities in the global South. And I think that it brings up questions of what it means to do something like this on government money and how that can be a form of implication as well. And I think that actually speaks to something in our next voice note, Um, in terms of the question of what it means to be funded by a violent system.
2: So next we're gonna hear from someone who worked within the Department of Education. We wanna give you a content warning because it's a highly sensitive story and there are mentions of suicide, miscarriage, CPTSD and workplace harassment. So um, if there's ever a point at which you need to tap out, um, that's yeah, totally, totally to your discretion.
4: I worked in the Department of Education um, for four years. Um, in my first year, I was really badly bullied, um, experienced two students die from suicide and just really poor management and overall shitty work conditions. Um, no locks on toilet, cubicle doors, for example, um, 47 degree room temperatures, all of that kind of thing. Um, My supervisor, the head teacher at the time was incredibly racist and just sexist and classist and all of the above. And so I suppose she kind of thought that she could treat me however she wanted to. Um, Anyway, um, it became increasingly hostile to work there. I miscarried at work, um, was not like sent to a hospital or anything like that. And senior leadership knew how they were treating me, um, this person, um, and they never stepped in. They didn't intervene or anything like that. So um, basically after trying to go back um, after maternity leave, um, my principal tried to make things really difficult for me so that I couldn't just come back to one day um, and created a return to work environment that was quite hostile. And I started to get panic attacks and was diagnosed with complex PTSD um, because I felt like what was happening was a repeat of my initial sort of work environment there. Um, And while I was on that leave, I'd also picked up um, two days of work at a not-for-profit that was directly linked to the Department of Education. Um, and was fine to work there, of course, until I finally made a formal complaint against my principal and his supervisor for colluding and for um, negligent sort of leadership and, you know, overall poor management of staff and sex and racial discrimination. Um, And they turned around and basically said that, I had all these allegations of misconduct against me. Um, And I was given the option to either resign and sign a non-disclosure agreement or be forced into a termination. Um, And I didn't want to resign and have to sign a non-disclosure agreement. So I said, no, I'm happy to be terminated. Um, And the fine print was that I would then have to sign. uh, Sorry, there was no signing. I would have to um, be on this list that was basically a blacklisted um, staff list and meant that I couldn't volunteer, I couldn't um, be a contractor, and I couldn't be an employer at the Department of Education. Um, And what that meant for me then was it directly affected my role at the not for profit. Um, and within two weeks of being terminated at the Department of Education, I then also was terminated by the not-for-profit. Um, white led, progressive, kind of went into Western Sydney and, you know, saved the black and brown kids of Western Sydney um, with zero solidarity uh, with black and brown women and non-binary people. Um but yeah, so basically, for all the last oh, nearly 12 months I've been unemployed um, and just recovering from CPTSD and trying to learn how to get back into the workforce and figure out what my next move is.
2: We want to thank you again for sharing so generously with us and being so vulnerable. Um, we hear you, and we also want to acknowledge the the gravity of what this story, or what this person's story holds, um, and how profoundly
3: that it has impacted their life i think there's just so many different things um to unpack in terms of the different power dynamics and the different structures that um appear in this story but i think like something that um seems to be like an underlying um thing to maybe think about is in connection to what we were talking about earlier um the department of education being um Sort of this violent uh, institution in itself and probably importantly like very directly connected to the state and can be thought of as an extension of the state really Um, and the sort of things that are happening within it both to students and as we can see in this story to staff um, is another form of sort of like control and policing and I think importantly is the fact that when these are the people who are paying you, what can you do in that situation? Like when there's that level of coercion? And it brings in a lot of questions about um, the dynamics of labour and capital as well.
2: That person's vulnerability in their position as, um, as a teacher in relying economically on this job and the manipulation that was involved in their expulsion but then also hearing about sort of the aftermath of that expulsion and like um the reality of um of of trauma um and being like left being left alone and sort of unsupported
3: yeah, I think it really speaks to this the disposability of workers in these sort of institutions and how little regard the institution has to have for people. Obviously, there's like racial and gender dynamics at play, but sort of like a broader question is um, like a question of economics, a question of like that kind of exploitation. And when education is turned into a business mm. and people are turned... Um, into workers and what is really like something that is so um learning is so interpersonal it's so like real learning is really grounded in in relationships and how these sort of like huge institutions that are built on making profit how little regard they can sort of have for that
2: it certainly makes you think about how much change can actually be enacted within the structure of these institutions it's it's such a confined and um you know suffocating space that in the overwhelming sort of confrontation of you know you're you're a you're an employee you're a teacher, and you're facing this um this deeply entrenched structure and you want to make change in that current structure and in trying to do that I guess like you're carving out your own space within that there's as say in like a position as a teacher you have only so much power you know and that maybe that power is in you know in relating to students and and, and to people um but when we're talking about like transforming like these structures that's such a like yeah that's such a huge momentous thing to undertake and like it makes me you know think about and wonder about like trying to create spaces outside of those institutions
3: yeah exactly. I think it really this story really indicates that ultimately if we want places for learning and education that are safe that are um radical and meaningful we need to burn all this other shit down (laughs) and ultimately that you know there's only so much like reform and like like i guess like small wins that can be had from within and that the real sort of Place we should be looking is outside of these institutions because so I think something else that comes up in the story is the amount of power that these big structures have to completely blacklist um, someone from any future employment in any um, school under Department of Education. And what we learn further in the story is that it doesn't end there. It also has led to determination in this supposedly independent um, NGO that is supposedly progressive that is supposedly not. You know, attached to the Department um, of Education directly, but nonetheless, um, because of what they've said, they've lost a position there as well.
2: It was really interesting to hear about how the NGO is interconnected with the Department of Education and the state, and how it sort of like promenades this facade of being progressive and like helping um disadvantaged people uh and servicing people and the performativity of that you know of that approach and I mean to me it sounds like it sounds quite like morally gratifying to them the reality is that they blacklisted um a person who is a part of their organization and that just speaks to the ways in which they value their employees. Um, It is, yeah, like you were saying, it's very disposable.
3: Yeah, it definitely seems to sort of reflect a bit of a white saviour complex um, vibe, but you can kind of see through the facade of it because they're saying that these are the people they're helping But when it comes to the people within their organization, they're they're not—they're like—they're not like supporting their staff of color. And what does that say about how meaningful their commitment to quote unquote anti-racism really is? I
2: mean, that opens up a whole range of questions surrounding like what meaningful solidarity actually looks like within organizations and institutions, um, and what people are scene versus what they're doing and the impact that it actually has on people's lives because it feels like there's this expanding void between the discourse and like the marketing strategies that um various organizations have and like the ways the ways in action the ways in which they're treating people um in reality. We've just spent the last hour hearing from you, helping us to investigate the galvanizing and problematic stories that you've had in educational institutions. We've touched on themes of racialized and gendered power dynamics within these institutions and how that extends out into the world and into the ways in which people relate to each other and critically, people's utter vulnerability to the violence that is enacted by these institutions.
3: On that, we want to really emphasize that this isn't just like an abstract or intellectual conversation. These issues have real and devastating implications on people's lives. As we heard in the stories in the voice notes, They leave pain, trauma and isolation in their wake. We are super grateful for everyone who has sent in their personal stories so far and really recognize the vulnerability in that. Also, we wanna note that this is an ongoing series so you can send us stories, thoughts and experiences via our socials at any point.
2: It has been an absolute pleasure to co-host you
3: I'm Alicia and I'm Samantha. Thank you for listening in and contributing your stories. You can listen back to episodes of Race Matters
2: at fbiradio.com/racematters. Race Matters. Race Matters. Race Matters. Race Matters.
0: Race Matters.
1: Race
2: Matters. Race Matters.